Saddle up, everybody. The Carolina Outdoors is now in session. Your host, Bill Barty, right here on this side of your radio dial. It's my pleasure to bring forth uh, things for you to do in the Carolinas outdoor-wise and adventure-wise. And we have a gem here in the Carolinas. In fact, it's in the low country of South Carolina. It's an estuary system made up of wildlife, waterway, islands, plants, and more. Plus, it's the home of one of the top naturalists in the country. He's the CEO of Coastal Expeditions, educating and taking people around on adventure in this estuary system. In fact, he's made a career out of educating people across the country about this gym in South Carolina and the clients that he takes out on experiences uh, never forget them. I'm one of those people, and I'm uh, join me in welcoming Captain Chris Crawley of Coastal Expeditions. Chris, welcome to the program. Hey, Marty. Man, how's it been going? Thanks for keeping me on your Rolodex. It's an exciting <laughs> time to be in the coast of South in the coastal plain of South Carolina. So spot on the timing. Well, and that this is one of the reasons that you are one of the top naturalists. It's not just because of your three decade plus career in getting people out and educating people. It's taking time to share with the Carolina outdoors and more about what you have down there. And I guess we should start like this, Chris. It's springtime in the Carolinas, and uh, you are out there on the waterway. You have guides and other naturalists that are taking people out as well. What's your favorite thing about the springtime in in the uh, creeks and rivers of the Charleston area? Oh man, Barty! It ha- you know it has been thirty years. It was nineteen ninety two. We were we were incorporated. We were founded, and you know it's just like I just I'm so full of gratitude. I just, you know I thank everybody. We've learned so much from doing it over the years from the clients. And what we've what what it boils down to this time of year, it's like you got to be practiced at the art of living. You know if you're oh, if yes. you're practiced at the art of living in the low country, you're aware that right now. The that prothonotary warbler that's been holed up in um, Columbia, South America, all winter is just arriving in the cypress trees in that blackwater cypress tupelo bottomland forest to nest just feet away from where they were born, and that thousands of miles of migration brings them back to the low country, and that's like an indicator, right? The indicator is like this is the best place to be in the world in the springtime. <laughs> it's just amazing. So true. And for our listeners out there, Chris, talk to us about, you know, I use words like estuary and ecosystem and and that, but then you use the term black water, and I have it on my list. We'll talk a little bit about Ace Basin, or we'll talk a little bit about Francis Marion National Park, but educate us on what black water is. So we'll, let's start at the ocean like the settlers did in this in this part of the world and the uh the Western European English settlers in 1670 started at the ocean on the barrier islands like Bulls Island and Cape Island and even down around St. Helena Sound of what is now around modern-day Beaufort, South Carolina. And, and then they worked up the rivers exploring and, and employing cartographers to make accurate the first accurate maps of the New World and meeting the indigenous people. And they worked up the river, and they worked up one of two kinds of rivers. They worked mm. up a river that was born in the Appalachian mountain chain up where the the ancient human migration exists between the Appalachian Mountains and the coast, and they worked up a different kind of river that was born in the Piedmont, that was born in the sand hills at the fall line of South Carolina, 
and the waters of those intimate Piedmont-born rivers get stained by the tannic, fulvic, and humic acids of the deciduous trees that thrive in the riparian zone, the riverbanks, the floodplain, and it stains the water black, like a, uh-huh. like a tea leaf would stain water a brown color for your sweet tea. Um, so these blackwater rivers, that's what we call a blackwater ri- river, is a, is a river that's born in the, in the Piedmont that works its way down and falls into the inlets and estuary, creates the estuaries that join the open um, ocean. But as you, get, as you follow them inland and you get around these towering, sometimes millennial, sometimes thousand-year-old cypress trees, the water is black like ink. Um, and, the, and the reflection that's caused by this, you know, it's clean, but it's black tannic water is amazing. The reflection of the trees, the reflection of the, of the yellow birds, not just the prothonotary warbler, but all of the birds that thrive in that, uh, in that ecosystem. The tanagers are in right now. It's another long migrant. The, um, the yellow-crowned night herons are nesting, and you can see their little kind of light blue eggs through the higgledy-piggledy twigs of their waterfront nests. We saw 120 white ibis kind of wading through that riparian zone, eating crawdads and crats and things like that the other day. It's, uh, it's you got to go. You know, I've got a nine-year-old and a four-year-old, and they're beautiful mom. And we go there as a matter of habit every year so we can show the girls what that ecosystem looks like, what they're natural heritage looks like in the Francis Marion National Forest, for example, that leads down into Cape Romaine National Wildlife Refuge. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that because I introduced you, of course, uh, and as you said, 1992, uh, the CEO of Coastal Expeditions. And uh, uh, Chris, these days, in the days of jet skis and motorboats and ski boats and fishing boats and, and all of these, nothing against big motors on the back, but the best way in what Coastal Expeditions has done and what you're doing now as a part of that education is it's many times it's taking the engine off. So these places, for the most part, and your guides and naturalists are doing this, are accessing this by boat, by kayak, by human-powered boat, I should say. Um, tell us about experience, experiencing these places like that as opposed to, ooh, I shouldn't even say this. It's sacrilegious to say jet ski in these things. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, there's, I, I tell you what, shout out to Chip Campson and the people that are on his committee that are getting that, uh, that, that 96 bill passed that required boater boater education for all Mm -hmm. so that you will have to have some kind of license to operate a powerboat but you know it's like i I heard the question barty and that i'm gonna i'm gonna go tangent and give you a different kind of answer because there is more pressure on the water these days with personal watercraft and boats with outboard engines than there has ever been in the history of earth um, and and that's good and fine for people to get out and have a connection with nature and to do it sanely and and uh, and in a sober way and and in a way that's you know a family oriented you know wholesome way. The problem is is that there's so much pressure on the beaches where the birds nest and rest that it's interrupting their nesting cycle and their necessary resting cycle. If they're flying two or three thousand miles from 
you know, if they're leaving northern Argentina to land hungry and tired in the, on the beaches of South Carolina, it's a hard place to find to land on Fourth of July. You know, oh, yes. so there's a oh, there's a big movement that is has to do with the ethical interaction with people on beaches and birds, especially um, people that love to boat with their dogs, which is all fine and good. It's just there's a ethical, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Um, so that is something that you'll hear a lot more about coastal squeeze and how to ethically interact with coastal birds, shorebirds and seabirds, important site fidelity, nesting grounds, rising water levels. There's a, there's a lot going on around those ecological topics today, but one of the ways we escape that is we leave the motor behind and we get into the self-powered boats and, and investigate these places that an outboard motor just can't go. Either the water isn't deep enough, there are too many strainers, or it's a wilderness area like the upper Wombaugh River that leads into the South Santee. Is a, a, motors aren't allowed of any kind in the wilderness. And, um, and man, it's an aesthetic that's unlike any other, um, quietly, gently easing up an intimate waterway, you know, but kind of weaving between the cypress knees and experiencing what's that, what that's like. It's, um, it's ancient, you know, it's sort of a birthright, sort of a genomic heritage. That is how the Native Americans, the indigenous people, plied these waters thousands of years ago. I mean, these aren't the people we met. These are prehistoric homo sapiens that paddled these creeks and rivers before, long before we ever got here. Oh, there's a painted bunting just came in. Oh, you have to paint that picture here on the radio. <laughs> so painted buntings. Most of our painted buntings, if my information is current and correct, are coming from uh, the island of Cuba in the Caribbean. And so the painter painted bunting is Passerina cirrus. They're a bird about the size of a sparrow, and they're certainly a neotropical New World migrant. And they are the most colorful songbird in North America. I'd put them up against just about any songbird pound for pound for color they're blue and red and yellow and green and there's this one color they do that's a mix between pink and purple it's just hard to describe but they come in they're gregarious enough the males come in and they stake their territory and they sing and sing this complicated beautiful warbling song and the female that's a, a lime green bird comes in and responds to that and they nest right here in the low country they're coming for thousands of miles to, to paradise they're coming to to to, you know, they're coming to your house, man. <laughs> ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, <this> is... <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is why he is one of the top naturalists in the United States, Captain Chris Crawley of Coastal Expeditions, because he helps lead the way, whether it's from a, a kayak or, or a walk on, on, a, on a beach or painting that picture here on the radio so that you can see into that saltwater estuary system where he lives uh, and shares it via radio. Hey, Chris, with that, I need to ask you a, a quick question, especially for our listeners, because down there in the area where you are, there is edible mud. Can you, <laughs> can you talk to us about edible mud? <laughs> you know, the, all the you know, ecosystems are the same no matter where you go, Barty. On Earth, as an earthling, <laughs> yes. you, re you recognize that ecosystems are all have producers, consumers, and decomposers. You know, and the producers are the plants, and the consumers are mammals like us, and the decomposers are the, you know, the fungus and algae and the things that 
break other things down. And most ecosystems, most ecosystems, when you talk about the tertiary, like the, the ground, the dirt, like the sand in the desert, is considered abiotic or non-living, right? Yes. But here, where the rivers meet the ocean, the very mud, the pluff mud or plow mud that the sporobolus grass, the spartina grass grows in, is so nutrient-rich. It's this biogenic ooze that's full of nitrogen and anaerobic bacteria and it's so nutrient rich that the the biology community the scientists consider it a biotic element of the ecosystem so the salt marsh estuary one of the you know in the top three most super biodiversified ecosystems on earth is so rich and so abundant so alive that you can actually eat the mud the biotic mud and be nourished by it so that's the pluff mud or plow mud that the sea island cotton farmers use to regenerate their fallow fields after a cotton crop back in the back in 17 something and that is where Barty, the south carolina state reptile loggerhead sea turtle is showing up right now while we're talking these 300 pound sea turtles are meeting up in the deep spot of the salt marsh estuary where the spartina grass the the crassostria the eastern oyster the pluff mud and the salt water all build this ecosystem and they're pair bonding and mating and they are uh and they're on their way to lay their eggs on the beaches of our barrier islands right here probably about the first week of may maybe second week of may yeah you know i have this on my list uh and and you were talking about the pressure on the beaches etiquette on the beaches whether it's human or our pets and everywhere in between uh, that sort of that that conversation of beach etiquette and I have May means loggerhead turtles uh, where you are tell us uh, that interaction as they make their way to the beach I guess they'll hatch in July or so mid to mid July to August how should we act how should we be of course they're active uh, uh, turtle. Uh, agencies who are helping mark the nesting grounds, but can you give us some advice on what we'll see and how we should act? I definitely, if you're out, if you're out in your power boat and you see a big football shaped head come up out of the water in the Creek that you're winding through, I'd say chop the throttle and idle on, but give that big turtle some, some time and space to get out of the way of that power boat. A lot of the turtle mortalities that we see right now are, are, or when the turtles get real thick has to do with, with boat strike, and uh, and certainly if you know where a nest is or see a turtle on the beach, you'd give that a wide berth and leave that alone. Or later in the summer, if you see a boil or a hatching, you'd want to steer clear of that. The, if a turtle's coming up the beach, it's don't bother her because she will she will uh, abandon her quest if she feels like it's an unsafe place for eggs. But um, where you know South Carolina is a superlative in a lot of things, and some of those things aren't things that we're that we're very proud of as a native South Carolinian. But some of them are so rich and good, like like more barrier islands than any other state except for Florida, more estuary than any other state except for Louisiana, and we've got more nesting loggerhead sea turtles than anywhere on the east coast of the United States, north of Cape Canaveral. Like in Cape Romaine alone, not even counting the great projects going on on Deweese Island and Sullivan's Island and the Isle of Palms and Kiowa and Seabrook. But in Cape Romaine alone, there were 3,311 nests just last year. 
and that wasn't the biggest year they've ever seen. <laughs> it's amazing. Wow. Um, what, and, and well, yeah. you've worked with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for uh, again for decades. What do they say about the the population? Are, are we uh, are we making inroads as far as the protections that we want to or need to with the loggerhead? Well, they. They, when they look back at the history, there's a lot of – we could do a program on just loggerhead sea turtles and talk about the relevant science that's finally coming through about about Coretta. Coretta, our state reptile, and their um, their site fidelity, where they're nesting, who they are, who they're nesting next to, and that sort of thing. The University of Georgia is carrying on some really great uh, genetic studies. The, uh, but when they leave the beach, it's like whatever half-dollar size – turtles they don't come back for something like 30 years and it just so happens that the turtle project in cape romaine which is sort of the it'll be the the star in the crown of sarah dossi the the current refuge manager at cape romaine the um it has been going on for about 30 years and i think that it's not science but it is easy to sort of um speculate that due to the nest protection uh, predator uh, threat reduction and uh, and all of the good work that's going on in Cape Romaine, that that's why the numbers are so high. There's there's a team of volunteers starting May 1st that's going to start going out there to Cape Island and Lighthouse Island and protecting nests and relocating nests and marking nests and taking genetic, genetic samples and uh, caging nests and so forth. And they'll go out seven days a week until the end of September, wow. rain or shine. Um, and the two wildlife uh, biologist technicians that are the key to that program that are sort of 1099 independent contractors, are paid. their salaries are paid through the efforts of the Coastal Expeditions Foundation um, with generous support through um, Boeing, South Carolina, and our own fundraising and grassroots efforts. And that's sort of how we're contributing to those wild people that help those wild animals in those wild places. Well, and it makes sense because Coastal Expeditions helps get people out. And I encourage our listeners, if you're in the Charleston area or even not, it's worth a trip. You have locations from the Isle of Palms to Folly Beach, Mount Pleasant, Bulls Island. You're running these Blackwater Rivers. I think you may go to a few other places that uh, aren't listed as well. But um, go back to that foundation because Coastal Expeditions Foundation uh, is being recognized as giving back to the wildlife. Um, can we access that so we can give via coastalexpeditions.com? Yeah, that's a great. Uh, thanks for thanks for mentioning it, Barto. The the um, it was like we had said before. My 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 dear friend Dana Beach told me one time that if you're doing if you're doing the good work, if you're doing work people care about, mm-hmm. then they'll give you money for it. And we do. We are a self funded foundation with corporate sponsors and our real strength is in our grassroots and our individual donors that have watched what we're doing and been part of what we're doing for the last 30 years and the coastal expeditions foundation is easy to google and just like everything these days there's a donate now button on every on every yes. page um, but again we were we were super lucky to get the attention of boeing south carolina that appreciates what we're doing for post-traumatic stress affected veterans and wild wild people wild places and wild animals the um and we're looking forward to expanding the role of the foundation into our newest um, outpost and location that uh, we were going to call Coastal Expeditions South, but we got down there and fell in love with it, so we call it Coastal Expeditions Beaufort. And we are um, 
We're doing quite a great business down there with Henry Brandt and his crew running Coastal Expeditions Beaufort and going out to uh, St. Phillips Island and partnering with the SCPRT at um, Hunting Island State Park. So we're we're proud of the foundation and we're looking forward to getting in, getting some why and behind the how of what we're doing in Beaufort, South Carolina, too. And I know Mr. Brandt is running some May trips as well, so you can uh, access those trips with him uh, at CoastalExpeditions.com as well. Kids programs, camps, field trips, uh, as you mentioned, the Veterans Resilience Program, paddling instruction. It goes on and on. And Captain Chris Crawley, I've kept you past the time I was supposed to. We we got to do it again. Thank you for being on the Carolina Outdoors <laughs> with us. Hey, Barty, you're the voice, man. You're the storyteller. I appreciate you keeping me as part of the story. I look forward to hearing from you soon, brother. So good. There he goes, Captain Chris Crawley. The feeling is mutual. Please join in. We're going to take a quick break, come back on the other side, and wrap this up, this thing called the Carolina Outdoors. <laughs> 